And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel. We're continuing today in our study, our series on the Ten Commandments, taking each commandment one by one, and today we land on the Fourth Commandment. Uh, Excited to go over this with you, Uh, but let's pause and let's ask for God's help. Uh, Let's pray together. Send your Holy Spirit, O Father, and give us more of Jesus in this time. Uh, We need not only a clear understanding of your word itself, we need wisdom by your grace to know how to apply it. We need open hearts. We need courage. We need uh, strength of soul. So come and give all those things and more to us and help us uh, in even the way that we hear your word and the way that we live out your word. Help this time to glorify you. This too is a part of our worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tell somebody, I'm tired, and you're sure to be greeted with knowing nods, and most likely an empathetic, I know what you mean. In fact, Sister Jouette, right now during the greeting time, and I had just such an exchange. Maybe you did too. I'm tired, you're telling me. People are tired. Exhausted. Are you? Does that describe you? For you, it might be the wear and tear of a difficult job, a difficult season in life. It might be the relentless pace of life. Maybe it's a health condition that's been dragging you down. Maybe it's the season of raising toddlers, or maybe it's hard relationships, or it's just worries that have been overcoming you because nothing drains your battery more than worry. Living in a city, of course, adds its own challenges, and so does the relentless news of war and another chaotic election cycle. According to surveys, only one in seven people in the U.S. feeling, uh, only one in seven people in the U.S. wake up feeling fresh every single day of the week. According to theologian and scholar Walter Brueggemann, he says, we are a society of 24-7 multitasking people, and we're 24-7 multitasking in order to achieve, accomplish, perform, and possess. And it's why we're tired. And it's not surprising, therefore, that the the notion of self-care has grown in popularity, even though, as you've experienced, as many people have noted, Even this pursuit of self-care, these self-care regimens themselves can become exhausting. All the to-dos and things you need to do in order to not feel so tired. I want you to know this morning, more than that, God wants you to know this morning. That God 
cares about you and your weariness. Just this weekend, I had a conversation in exchange with one of my children where they were complaining about being tired, literally saying, I am tired, to which I responded, no, you're not. (laughs) Explaining them, explaining to them that the only reason why they're claiming to be tired is because they don't want to do what they're supposed to do. It wasn't just a few minutes later that I need to return to them and apologize for not acknowledging their tiredness. Sure, there were other things we needed to work through together. (laughs) But I know you're tired. See, the good news of the Bible is God, your heavenly father, isn't like me. When you say you're tired, he says, I know you are. I know you are. Sees you in your weariness, your buckling knees, your dragging heart, your even tearful exhaustion. And he says, I know you're tired. God cares about you and your weariness, so much so that he addresses it right here in the fourth of the Ten Commandments. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. These are, are ten principles, ten commands, ten statements that God uses to summarize the totality of his moral law, what he requires of humanity in his relationship with them, in our relationship with one another, and he burns one of those ten on rest. Stop. You're tired. The word Sabbath, in the Hebrew, it means something like sit down, cease, rest, And the Sabbath day, of course, refers to the seventh day of the week, according to the ancient Jewish calendar. Sabbath. But what does that really mean, this Sabbath rest? How do we do it? We're looking at that today. Let's look at this command under three different headers. Number one, the purpose of Sabbath. Uh, Number two, the glory of work. Yeah. And three, the gift of rest. The purpose of Sabbath, the glory of work, and the gift of rest. First, the purpose of Sabbath. Why? Why does God command, call us into a time of break, of replenishment, of rest? First of all, the first purpose is for the well-being of you and me, for our good. Now, this, I think, is pretty simple and pretty understandable. We are called to a regular rhythm of work and rest because God loves us. This is not just a call to some legalistic adherence to a command to cease your work and to set it aside. Oftentimes it can become legalistic, just about abiding by a rule. But Jesus was clear in Mark chapter 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for mankind, not man for the Sabbath. Which means it's meant for our good, not just for our conformity by rules. Why, the the Sabbath is meant ultimately not just for rest, but through our rest for a recovery of our humanity. Right? We live regularly exhausting ourselves, literally dehumanizing ourselves with the wear and tear. We're recovering a deep sense that we are made in the image of God, that we are in fact not machines. And so we need to recharge be replenished. See, the stunning good news, even of this command, is that the God who loves you so is a God who not only permits you to rest, but a God who commands it. 
because he knows we need our habits to be interrupted. He knows that we won't stop unless he tells us to. He calls us and commands us into the very thing our souls and our bodies most need, and he tells us we have to. It's good news to know that the God who comes near to us is not a God who ultimately judges us by our productivity and our performance. If he were such a God, he would never tell you to stop. In fact, he would be more like the Pharaoh that the Israelites were accustomed to being ruled by. A Pharaoh who said, don't stop. Are you kidding me? Work more. The God of grace gives us the opposite message. Because he's out for the well-being of you and me. But secondly, the second purpose of the Sabbath is the worship of God. It's not only for us, it's also for him in this sense. Look at verse 10. That verse describes the seventh day as a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's a Sabbath that's actually lifted up, a rest that is lifted up unto God. It's for God's sake that we're commanded to stop and rest. You say, well, that doesn't really make sense to me. How is this too for God's sake? It's this, because we will not have the capacity to be attentive to God until we settle down our bodies and our souls. As long as we are buzzing within and buzzing without, we will not have the spiritual attentiveness to be able to give God the attention he deserves and the worship and praise and love that he deserves. And so the Sabbath is not only a call to rest, it's sort of that message that we often give to children Sometimes adults, when we want to get their attention, what do we say? Sit down, look at me, pay attention to me, eyes on me. And that's what God says to us. Sit down, eyes on me. It's for the worship of God. Remember the idea of Sabbath being for the recovery of our humanity. Well, that humanity includes being in a vibrant communion with God. And so our restfulness brings us into a spiritual state where we finally can bring to him restful communion, a stillness before God, which is precisely what he deserves. Be still and know that I am God. So stop rest, and worship. The well-being of you and me, the worship of God, and the third purpose of Sabbath is the well-being of those around us, even our neighbors. Let me explain this. Notice in the second half of verse 10, we're told this, on it, the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. Okay, so you need to stop and rest, but it keeps on going. What does it say? You shall not do any work, and you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, and even the cattle, right? Or the sojourner who is within your gates. In other words, not only you, but anyone who is under your care. Let's work out the implications of this. The fourth commandment here calls us to Give Sabbath rest to other people, not only to take and receive it for ourselves. So leaders of households 
are called to create entire family systems that actually promote replenishment and rest. Homes of Sabbath, families of Sabbath, but that can also extend and apply to communities, to schools, to neighborhood blocks. Are you someone that gifts Sabbath to those around you? Or when people are around you, do they feel the constant demands of more productivity, more outcomes? Do they feel like you're coming as a taskmaster, even in your personal relationships? What is people's uh, uh, experience of you as a person, a neighbor, a worker, a family member? We're to give Sabbath, not only to receive Sabbath. Moreover, we are to guard against exploiting other people in search of our own rest. I need a break, so you all need to pick it up and pick me up. The ways in which that can take place in our family systems, in our economic systems. Let me be clear we do need to commit to the practice of Sabbath in a way that will at times feel selfish. This is why it's a struggle for many people because it feels like, gosh, I don't know that I can really care for myself. I need to keep giving again. So it will sometimes feel selfish to guard the boundaries of your work life, to practice Sabbath, and to prioritize your own replenishment. Yes, it will feel that way. But we do also need to push out and guard ourselves against an actual sinful selfishness by which we are exploiting other people just so that we won't be troubled. Making them do the work so that you don't have to. Making other people labor and be exhausted themselves so that we never have to experience that either. You see, what's fascinating about this passage is it points to the giving of Sabbath to people across the economic spectrum in one's household, no matter their station of life. One's children, one's workers, servants, slaves, on down the list, including the cattle and the land itself. In other words, what the Bible tells us again and again is that Sabbath is especially for the most vulnerable those who experience the restlessness of economic hardship and injustice. We see this when the Bible talks about, in the Old Testament, not just the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. That was a time when every seventh year, all debts would be canceled. And the most indebted people generally were people that were economically more poor. All debts were canceled. All servants and slaves were set free, emancipated. And the land itself would lie fallow. That means it would be untilled and unused for an entire year, except for what would just grow naturally, in which case lower income families were welcome to come and draw from it as they will. This Sabbath year is a measure that was designed to benefit the most vulnerable people in Israelite society. In other words, the Sabbath year was not only a provision of rest, it was just a provision for those around, a provision of giving rest to those that most needed it. It was a system that actually, you will notice, deliberately limited people's ability just to live to maximize productivity and profit. God said no to that very impulse. And he then reoriented the people to a different kind of orientation towards neighbor. You don't exist just for my own luxury. 
I exist to care for you and we for one another. Sabbath is not just for receiving, it's also for giving, for caring, for releasing people from a kind of captivity, even in our very own blocks and cities. Consider the purposes of Sabbath for ourselves, for God, for our neighbor. Let's dive then into the glory of work because before we get to the practice of Sabbath, I want to talk about the right understanding we need to have about our work. This is why if we're not careful, we will learn to love Sabbath rest by hating work. And this passage doesn't let us do that. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So we're commanded to work. And someone says, wait, I'm kind of confused. Are you contradicting yourself? Is God saying one thing or another? I thought we're supposed to rest. Well, listen, our work, our daily work is hard, requiring us to rest from it. It is full of drudgery and frustration and, yes, exhaustion. Computers crash, boxes fall, customers yell, coworkers flake, projects flop and fail. And this is not out of the purview of the Bible that calls us to rest. The Bible is the one that actually explains why this is so, Genesis 3, where we're told that our work itself is under the curse of the fall. When sin entered the world, it infected all things, including our work. We will experience thorns and thistles, Adam and Eve were told. As you try to till the ground, the ground itself will resist you. Work will be hard. And then on top of that, we often have a dysfunctional relationship with our work. Where we do our work demanding that it make us feel important. Demanding that it make us feel always happy or accepted or loved. And that's especially if we've been raised being told that you can become anything you want and the point in life is for you just to find yourself. Well, if that's the narrative you have in your heart, in your minds, then suddenly the search for a job becomes an unbearable quest for personal satisfaction and meaning rather than service. And it's why so many people in our city are paralyzed, searching for the perfect job. Or who find themselves bouncing from job to job or even from city to city, thinking they're looking for a job when really they're using their job to look for themselves. And so we can have a a distorted, dysfunctional relationship with our work, which itself is something to examine, something maybe even to repent of as it's often marked by idolatry. Nonetheless, it all adds up to the fatigue and exhaustion that we experience day to day in our work, whether at home or out of the home, whether for pay or not for pay. This is why we need Sabbath rest. Because work is hard, but work is also good. There is a glory to our work. Look at verse 11. It tells us why Sabbath, why 
For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. The Lord made. God worked. God is a worker. And this means when we work, we image God. We actually are a reflection of the God who creates, who manages, who cleans, who organizes, who makes the world a clearer reflection of himself, which is exactly what he calls us to do as his little kings and queens deployed across this world, called to take the raw materials of the world and its relationships and to make something beautiful of it that people might see little glimpses of God here on earth as it is in heaven, you see. That's why we work. That's why we expend our energies in the way that we do. This is why we use our gifts. This is in part why God has given us gifts and talents and abilities in the first place. Our work is a picture of the glory of God. And in fact, in the coming week, whether if you expect a hard week or a free-flowing week, tell yourself, rehearse this thought to yourself as you are working, hey, I look like God. In my work, in what I'm doing, no matter how menial it might feel, no matter how frustrated I might be in it, my work is to the glory of God. Tell yourself that. Rehearse those words until you actually begin to start to believe it a little bit. There is a glory to our calling to be workers in the world that we need to rediscover. And you say, well, why does that matter? A couple things, like we said before, if we're not careful, we will learn to love Sabbath rest by hating our work. We need to avoid that. But also, we are called to rest, but rest is not by itself escape from our work but rather replenishment so that we can re-enter our calling to be faithful workers in this world. Do you see that? Rest isn't just running away from the work that's a terrible thing that we need to get away from. It's actually for the sake of work that we rest, the best sides of work, the best callings of work, we get replenished and re-energized and restored from all our fatigue and from all our even woundedness in our work so that we can faithfully return to our work as God has called us to work, which is good. And so the Bible calls us in the fourth commandment to a life rhythm of work and rest and work and rest. And let me just point out, this is different from the way that so many people in modern life practice self-care or whatever things of those na that nature, right? This is sort of what rest typically looks like for most busy people in Washington, D.C. Work, 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 vacation, work, work. <laughs> Work, work, work. And you're just holding your breath. Holding your breath, almost literally, until that next break. And you've been holding your breath so long, you get on vacation and you wonder why you don't know how to breathe. God calls us to something different. He calls us to a rhythm. Not work, 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 vacation, work, work. He calls us to work, rest, work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. A rhythm. A, a, a normal up and down and in and out, a normal rhythm. 
of six days of work in the image of God, as God worked in the creation of the world, and one day of rest, which means this rest is not only something he commands, it's hardwired into us. It's part of our human design. If you don't get the rhythm of rest that you need, your body breaks down because you are no longer acting in line with your human design. So what does this look like then? This, this, this gift of rest, our third header here, third point. The purpose of Sabbath, the glory of work, the gift of rest. Let's talk about this. The gift of rest. Now, I'm calling it a gift because I think the Bible, this passage, this commandment presents Sabbath rest as a gift. And what do I mean by that? Have you noticed in commanding it to us, God is giving it to us, which means you don't need to earn rest. You ever get that feeling? I don't feel like I've done enough to actually take a break. God says no to that lie. God says no to the lie that you need to work hard enough or long enough to earn the opportunity to pause and take a break. So much of our working is fatiguing because it's fueled by guilt and fear. God calls us to simply receive by faith his gift of rest, receiving it as something he gives to us, not something that we need to work for. And then he calls us to labor out of that rest in the world. Not laboring for that rest. You've earned a weekend. You've earned a day off. You've earned, no. But out of that time of replenishment, now you move into the world, which is why it's really important to understand Sabbath day as the first day of the beginning of a new week. It's a launch pad. It's that incubator. It's that place of refueling. It's the pump whereby you are being restored and then shot out into the world to the various callings that God has put you into. It's a gift, dear friends, because it also reflects the very heart of the gospel of grace itself. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give Give you rest. So you can stop. You can cease. And you might be hearing this right away and you're like, uh, but you'd have no idea how much I have on my plate. You have no idea how many people are depending upon me. And you know what? That might be true. It absolutely might be. It's important for us to handle these things with gentleness and with mercy. But I also need to point out, as the Bible points out, that it takes faith to rest. It takes an enormous amount of trust in God's sovereign power and control in order to actually stop. Listen to the wisdom of a 17-year-old came across this essay written by a young Christian lady, 17 years old. She wrote this in, on, for an essay. I don't know if it was for her school or for her church, but she wrote it on Sabbath. And here's one line that I thought was especially wise and helpful. This is what she says. The ritual of Sabbath keeping is a radical statement that we are not God. And we trust him to hold the world together even if we stop for one day each week. Learn from a 17-year-old, right? 
To stop requires faith and hope in a God who will take care of those things that you're terrified are going to drop. Faith in a God who loves you more than you know how to love yourself or your circumstances or the people that you feel like depend upon you, where you're able to stop and trust God to hold the world together even if we stop for one day each week or one hour in the day or at all. Have you thought about rest, stoppage time in that fashion? It's a function of your trust in God. As we look at different ways that we practice Sabbath, it's important to remember, I think, how it's not only a day that's set aside one in seven, but it's also a principle of rest that can be applied throughout the day and in other seasons of life. So it's both a day that we're called to set aside or a principle that can be applied in different parts of life's exhausting routines. And I just want to lay out for you four quick little principles just to be very practical, hands-on about these things. Four things that we can do as we explore what we need to do in planning out and purposing ourselves towards rest as a rhythm. Number one, we need to stop. You're like, oh, duh. We gotta, no, no, you got to stop. You got to stop. Cease. So the question here is, what will you stop doing? What do you need to stop doing as part of your rhythm of rest? So let me just read this out for you as a little sentence that I've used before here in this pulpit. We need to pause from our daily work at the end of each day and at least one full day each week. Or if you're in a, in a unique vocational season of life, you're the mom of a nursing infant, or your shift work requires you to go in every day, then at least setting aside three hours of Sabbath a week. So we got to pause from our daily work. And stopping requires commitment. In other words, I don't know if it's possible to actually practice Sabbath successfully without putting it on your calendar. I don't know. God didn't say that. (laughs) But I think wisdom dictates If your calendar is what reflects your priorities, if stop or end of day or no more work or turn it off is not in your calendar at the end of the day or at the end of the week or both, then it certainly isn't a real priority for you. So you got to make a commitment, which I think means you got to put it in your calendar. Stopping also requires preparation. In other words, I think a lot of times we get to the end of the day or week and we say, oh my gosh, look at all that I have to do. There's no way I can stop right now or it just keeps on lingering in your mind or in what you're doing in the day. And I think what we have to realize is it actually takes the whole week, a whole week's commitment in order to practice Sabbath successfully and sustainably. In other words, you actually have to arrange your whole week around the priority of Sabbath and not the other way around. And we learn this actually from the Bible itself. If you remember the story of manna, Exodus 16, the Israelites are out in the wilderness, and they have no food, and so God provides for them miracle bread. It would just sort of show up on the ground, this flaky, bready kind of thing. It was called manna, which means, what is it? Because they said, what is it? And God said, that's the name, right? And on the day before the Sabbath, in preparing for this day off day, God actually would say, 
take up more than you need for this day because tomorrow you're not going to get any Sabbath. So you actually prepare, you have to prepare for this day of non-gathering up, non-working that's coming around the corner. And I think we can take from that this really important practical principle that you have to prepare for it. You actually have to think ahead in order to make your Sabbath successful. If you're trying to work it out in the moment, it never works. I know that from personal experience, right? If you're just winging it at the end, it does not work. In fact, even for you students, this is something that can be put into practice, needs to be put in practice, even in your arranging of your homework. So for example, in our family, we've been talking uh, together with our kids about how, well, maybe if you really want to not be doing homework on Saturday and Sunday, but you do have homework to do, then that might mean you need to do a little bit on Friday afternoon, even though, oh my gosh, who wants to do homework on Friday afternoon? But for the sake of actually enjoying Sabbath, that's what it'll cost. So you want that? Which one would you rather have? Sort of homework all the time? Or, you got to bias the conversation, right? Homework all the time? Or, let's do a little homework on Friday, and then you actually get time off to play, play, play. And clean the house, too. All right. And it's no different for us adults in our work, or you adult students in your studies. It takes a little bit of forework in order to do the rest. I think sometimes it requires a little bit of an opening ceremony. <laughs> What's an opening ceremony? At the beginning of an Olympics, right? A big parade, some exciting moment that marks the beginning of a thing. It's what we need as well to mark, sometimes with our eyes and our senses, that Sabbath is beginning. It's an ancient Jewish practice. A lot of people do this even as uh, modern Jewish people and as Christians. Lighting a candle, saying a specific prayer that you repeat each time, uh, marking the beginning of this time of rest and refreshment. Or there might be another kind of ritual, an ancient ritual that you might need to copy and implement. It's clicking and shutting down your computer. Right? Powering down. Maybe it means limiting visual and mental reminders. Stepping away from email. I know a friend who actually put on a weekly automated email signature telling everybody, not just don't expect an answer, but it's because I'm trying to practice Sabbath rest. Increasingly, I think also Sabbath means resting from technology. We've talked about this before. Putting away phones, putting away our screens. And I need to say this too, it's not only our work that we're trying to keep at bay. It's not only the work emails and it's not only shutting off the computers or it, it's, it's also in addition to that stopping this idea that stopping also means decreasing for a time our drive to be productive even in other areas of life where you're always running on the motor of I need to be getting something done. This too is the ceasing of Sabbath. Theologian Marva Don, who passed away not too long ago, wrote this very helpfully, cease not only from work itself, but also from the need to accomplish and be productive, from the worry and tension that accompany our modern criterion of efficiency, from our efforts to be in control of our lives as if we were God. So 
I'm not saying that you can't do errands, for example, on your Sabbath day or Sabbath time, but I do mean keep your eye on that too. That you don't fill up those supposed times of rest with other forms of productivity that essentially keep your heart and your body running on the same fuel of getting things done. There should be at least some notable decrease or diminishment of the productivity gauge even in other areas of life beyond our work. Okay, number one, stop. Number two, running quickly. Number two, replenish or rest. Well, this is obvious, but it needs to be spelled out. Not only are you called to stop, what what will you stop doing? You are now called to replenish or rest. What will you do for R&R? Because don't you know, I know, you can do nothing and still be tired. Especially when you've been tired a long, long, long time. Right? You can do nothing and stay empty So what are you going to do to fill you up? That's the question. And so we need to do the creative, self-reflective work of embracing activities that will positively replenish, restore, and refresh both our bodies and our souls. And for me recently, to give one example, it's been getting back to playing piano. And so for me, piano was a big part of my life growing up classically trained, something I used to do for hours on end every single week. And now coming back to that is some different mixture of, well, a little bit of nostalgia, but also applying my focus in a different way that just turns out to be refreshing. You know, I'm still working for something. There's a repetition to doing scales or working on a difficult piece, which is what I'm working on right now. That actually is restorative, enlivening. You know what it's like. It's why the challenge of a good hike can actually feel restful. It's why the challenge of of painting a, a beautiful work or writing a poem or reading a hard book and using your mind sometimes actually turns out to be restorative. What is it for you? What do you need to commit yourself to applying yourself to It might be relearning a piece. It might be painting a thing. It might be writing a thing or reading a thing. And maybe at the end of it, we need to celebrate together by having a recital and sharing the fruit of our replenishment together so that we know, not for the sake of performance, but for the sake of celebration, we know that we're growing in this regard. But it needs to be something that you actually look forward to, which is something that I found in my life where it's sort of like, well, you need to stop and then you need to go and do, I don't know. It needs to be something set up that your heart actually looks forward to. Cooking that meal that you've been longing to try out. Meeting with that friend. Going on that hike. Working out with that team. What is it going to be for you? And that brings us to the third point, which will be brief. And that's delight. See, this is closely uh, uh, related to the practice of rest, but it's worth emphasizing separately, and that is that this is meant to be a time of delight, a a time of of joy, a time of celebration. Isaiah 58, 13 tells us that we're to make the Sabbath a delight, and the Hebrew word that's used there can be translated an exquisite delight. 
see, that's where it's like, this is not just about the legalistic adherence to these rules about stop your work and shut down your, it's not that. What will recharge your heart and your body with joy? What will it take to make your Sabbath day or your hour at night, your Sabbath minute, the best part of the week? Your most favorite day of the week? What will make it a weekly party almost? Pastor Ortberg, John Ortberg, once wrote these words I thought were helpful. One day a week, eat foods you love to eat. Listen to music that moves your soul. Play a sport that stretches and challenges you. Read books that refresh your spirit. Wear clothes that make you happy. I love that one. (laughs) Wear clothes that make you happy. I don't know what it is. Snap a photo. Share it with the community. Surround yourself with beauty. And as you do these things, give thanks to God for his wonderful goodness. Try to put this delight principle into practice with our kids. Uh, starting several years ago, just trying to make this idea of Sabbath not a chore, uh, but actually a delight, where we decided every Sunday morning we would eat a particular breakfast, and it's something that we called, call, still called, Sabbath pancakes. And what are Sabbath pancakes? Pancakes with lots and lots of chocolate chips. Because here was an attempt in our family to make sure kids associated Sabbath with the greatest joy in their lives. <laughs> Chocolate, right? Not a normal breakfast, a delightful one. One that they actually looked forward to so that their senses would be trained to associate happiness and delight together with the day of rest. You see, what is the adult version? Now, forget the adult version. Some of you need to eat Sabbath pancakes, right? Some of you need more chocolate in your life on a Sunday. But don't you know, the passage tells us, remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Holy simply means set apart, different. Whatever practices we employ, the goal is to actually make the day feel different from the others. Different things, different ways of going about your day, different foods that you eat, different ways of replenishing yourself too. What will make that day feel special, delightful, the best day of the week? See, Sabbath is not just the absence of busyness, it's the presence of refreshment and delight. And lastly, stop, rest, delight, worship. Because the greatest delight we're training our souls to believe is to meet with God and to remember God. See, the Sabbath day was for the Israelites, a day of worship to go to the tabernacle, to bring offerings, to bring sacrifices. So even as we talk about rest, this is not just physical rest and restoration that we're talking about. It's also restoration of the soul, inner rest, Sabbath of body and soul. Because, again, have you ever gone on vacation and come back still tired? Yes, of course. And so here's the call in the midst of our physical replenishment to embody and to put into practice spiritual practices that replenish 
our souls, to remember the love of God in Jesus. And this is why it's so important to put these things together, to couple them together. Because when you're not doing anything, when you're not working, when you're in fact not even submitting to the impulse to get errands done even, and you're sitting there, and for some of us it's a harder challenge than for others, to sit there and to know the love of Jesus is so powerful to know that God loves me even when I am least productive. God accepts me. God adores me. God is proud of me. God sets his affection upon me. God sings over me even when I'm doing nothing. Because it's not my doing that establishes our relationship. It's his love. And what he most wants from me, in fact, is just for me to be with him. And I don't get that. He just wants you to commune and to sit. And yes, to serve him. But to love him even as you know you are loved. And so will we mix practices of worship and prayer in the mix of our rest, not just the replenishment of our outsides, but also of our insides? Daily prayer, Sunday worship, where even we're cultivating a sense that I cannot enter the week's demands without first starting the week by gathering with God's people and worshiping Christ and remembering his love. How do you cultivate that, that sort of assumption? I, I, I don't dare go out there <laughs> without getting refueled. So I'm going to run out of gas. Refueled in my soul. Here's a call to remember not just the Sabbath itself, but the God of Sabbath. To remember Jesus who offers rest from all our works, where he died and lived to earn for us God's acceptance where he brings to us the love of God, where he heals our restless hearts and soothes our restless bodies. Jesus, who by his death and resurrection brings, in, brings us into what the Bible calls our eternal Sabbath rest. Do you know the weekly practice of Sabbath is pointing to a day when all our tiresome, fatiguing, and exhausting work will end. This is heaven. This is the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, where Jesus says all of life will be service unto God without the debilitating exhaustion that we now feel. Our rest is for God and for us. It is worship as well as physical replenishment. And let me repeat what I said earlier, that this worship piece is so in, in, important together with rest because, friends, you cannot rightly commune with God as long as you have a buzzing, restless heart. Sabbath is a foundational practice that settles us down to be still so that we can see God. Do you need rest, dear friends? Do you know the God of rest? Will you dare this week to put into practice a few pieces of this rest? Jesus calls to you and me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. God of rest and of grace, thank you for this word. 
Help us to not only believe your promise of rest, help us to practice this rest by faith, because it takes faith, but with wisdom to know what will work best. But help us to take you seriously by prioritizing this, to realign ourselves with the humanity that you designed us for and for the communion with the God of the universe that you redeemed us for. So come near to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.